Hello, I'm very grateful to be joined by Alistair Campbell, spokesman for former Prime Minister Tony Blair, a political strategist, writer and author of his latest book, Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression. Alistair, thank you very much for joining me on this rather grey, rainy morning. It's absolutely chucking it down here. It's awful, isn't it? It's really awful. Uh, okay, so there's a degree of permanence to your subtitle, How I Learned to Survive Depression. What I've gathered from your, your book is that it's more of a continuous task. It's like learning instead of learned, which is kind of similar to um, Aristotle's idea of eudaimonia. I actually have a quote from his writing, The Nicomachean Ethics. I want you to reflect on whether it encapsulates your experience of uh, learning to survive depression. So here's, okay. here's the quote for you right now. Um, for as it is not one swallow, nor one fine day that makes a spring. So it is not one day or short time that makes a man blessed and happy. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's a very very fair observation. I think it's um, you know I thought a lot about the subtitle and the publisher sort of kept pushing me to try to say how I learned to beat depression mm. and mm. and I said no it's not that and and even survive is like um, maybe a bit overstating. Um, I certainly feel that I've. I've developed ways of dealing with it better than I had before. Mm. Um, but it's still kind of, it still comes on and I still, I still can get in quite bad places with it. Yeah. I mean, Aristotle's eudaimonia, he, he said that a child can't be seen as, as somebody who has eudaimonia, which is some form of enlightenment. It's, it's only something that can be judged over the whole lifespan of a human. So, so is your process of surviving depression, is that something that can't be judged within a week uh, by week basis? It's just something that, that can uh, go on throughout the whole lifespan. Yeah. Um, I certainly think I wrote years ago, I wrote another book about depression, a very short book. It was actually a speech that turned into a little short book called The Happy Depressive. And I said in there that I, I, it's interesting that lifespan point because I don't believe that happiness is kind of about the moment. And maybe that's the same for depression. So when I'm in a depressed state mm. where I know I am depressed and a doctor would say, you are going through, you know, a period of depression. Um, I know that's true. And likewise, when I'm happy, I can be happy for a moment. I was really happy the other night when Chris Wood scored the winner for Burnley against Aston Villa. I occasionally will sort of, I've found this in the last few months with Fiona, my partner, just suddenly feeling without speaking, without anything, just sort of feeling a sense of contentment in her presence and being there. And so that's a form of sort of happiness. Mm. But I said in that book years ago, I don't believe we know that we've lived a good or a happy life or a bad and an unhappy life until we get towards the end of it. Yeah. Um, now, back in when Aristotle was was around, I'm already past the period of when that would have been because life expectancy back then was of kind of you know about half of what I am now. Life expectancy now, um, you know, if I stay reasonably fit, I would expect to live you know at least another twenty odd years. Um, so I guess there might come a point, and I hope it comes before I lose any marbles where you can start to make that judgment. But I really believe that. I really think that you, I think if you just focus on happiness being about the moment, I think you there's a risk of being, of kind of not getting what life's really about. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, it's, so it isn't something of permanence. So it's still a process you're learning right now to this day. Yeah, I, I, I will get, um, I will get more depressive episodes. I know that. Mm. Um, and part of the learning process has been about a kind of acceptance of that. And since I have accepted that, as opposed to just raging at it whenever it happens, mm. um, and it may be coincidence, but the gaps between the depressions seem to be getting longer. Mm. Chap chapter three of your book is your depression scale, where you have a scale of mm -hmm. one to 10 you've outruled the idea of one, which is complete happiness. And you've also outruled the idea of 10, which is actively suicidal. Um, no, it's active suicide. Active suicide, okay, active suicide. Nine would be actively suicidal, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
so how are you feeling today? What number are you today? You said yesterday that, that you were quite happy um, because you were very content with your, your partner. So does that mean that you were, you're, you're feeling quite good today? Uh, I woke up today about five. Five. So that's in the middle. Five's kind of dull. Dull. Okay. Uh, so, so you feel kind of dull today. How do you think you'll feel later this evening? Uh, probably the same. Probably, probably the, the same. same. Is that typically? Uh, does it typically go the same, or does it sort of increase in certain uh, times in the day, or is there certain parts of the day where you feel really down and really up? Is there's there's no kind of there's no simple answer to that. But for of you asking the question has made me think I will do things to push myself up the scale. Mm. Mm. Um, and I can do that. I've found ways of doing that. So, for example, if I, if you say to me right now, what have I got to look forward to in the day? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a personal training session online at five o'clock. That's probably the highlight, to be honest. Mm. Um, I've got a couple of Zoom calls that um, I'm not particularly looking forward to. Um, so they're going to kind of leave me on that sort of level. Um, the weather doesn't help because I was thinking I might sneak out an hour on the bike. Yeah. And I could do that. Um, so yeah, I, but, but I can, I can get up, I'll get up to four by the end of the day. You get up to I'll four. Think of, I'll think of you and I'll think of your question. Thank you very much. Yeah. Continually measure your scale and hopefully it gets higher than, than, uh, I mean, lower, sorry. Not it higher. does, but that, that's why, I, that's why I find it useful because I can, I do have little devices that I can kind of rely on. Yes. What, what are those? So exercise must help, surely. Um, yeah. Reading, relaxing. Do you do meditation? I don't know, but I, I do. Um, I, I, re reading definitely helps. Writing helps. Yeah. And also listening to music. Mm. That, that's one I, thing that's one thing I, I wanted to talk about writing so Stephen Fry national treasure said that your book living better could save lives. Um, do you think your writing uh, over the years has helped save your life? Um, I certainly, yeah, I think, I, I certainly think that when one of the things I do whenever I am kind of going onto a plunge is I, I have this, these post-its on my wall and one of them says thinking ink. Mm. Um, and thinking ink means, you know, right through don't just write down but write through what you're thinking and I guess that's why I keep a diary it's probably why I write so much um I write I write several thousand words every day wow um and some days a lot more than that um and yeah it def definitely 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 helps so and the thing about um you know I got an amazing email the other day through my website from a guy who'd he'd been listening to living better on audible mm-hmm yeah, definitely. But this this guy wrote to me saying that he he'd been very very suicidal. He was kind of at nine. He was actively thinking of doing ten, and he said his dad had recommended my book to him, and he got it. He downloaded it on Audible, and he was driving around aimlessly listening to the book. Yeah, and he said it pulled him back. Wow. So that's a nice. That's a nice. How book. does how does that make you feel knowing that you've helped someone potentially save their life? Good. Good, um, it, it may, yeah, because and it, and it makes it, it it takes you back to those times when you're in the kind of creative process when you're writing, which and I do enjoy writing, but there's no doubt that writing a book, um, particularly a book as personal as this one, is there are some very very kind of lonely moments in it, and mm. there, are, there are some very there are some very sad moments in it. I mean, I you know I remember when I was writing. Uh, there were two sections that I was writing, one about my brother Donald and one about my cousin Lackey who killed himself, where yeah. I was writing and I suddenly realised I was crying. Mm. I wasn't crying, it wasn't painful, but I suddenly realised, and, and when you're doing that, that's incredibly lonely on one level, but then when you get that sort of feedback from that guy driving aimlessly around, he was, around, he was said he was driving up and down the M56, uh, when you get that sort of... Um, feedback is worth it.
Yeah, I mean, when I was listening to, to chapter one and chapter two, my heart did go out, out uh, for you. I mean, your your brother, Donald, having such integrity, having such a passion for life is, is an incredible message for, for everybody who listens to it, even if they're not going through any challenges to their mental health. It's just such a, a powerful message to listen to. It really is. Oh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you thought that, because I, I think the thing about, you know, for those who are listening who don't know the story, he, he had schizophrenia. And um, and yet he never he never kind of allowed it to define who he was. Mm. He just he was like he just he, f he found a way of living a pretty good life, really. And and um, and one of his doctors once said to me, he said, you know, Donald is he's, he's my kind of he's my best ever patient. He's like, you know, yeah. I always love to see him. He's he's got his own flight. He's got his own car. He's got more friends than he'd be able to know. He loves his music. He he keeps very very positive and. Mm. I say in, in the book that he, I never, ever, ever once heard him sort of say, why did this happen to me? You know, mm. why would somebody else? He never, yeah. ever said that. For that story alone, I think it's worth uh, listening or reading the book. Um, and then also there's uh, wonderful lessons you can gather from and, and great insight to your life as well. So it's, it's something that I definitely do recommend listening or, or reading. Um, okay, so in 2019, um, there were 5,691 suicides registered in England and Wales. How can we talk about this topic more often? Um, well, partly, I think, through the campaign. I think we are talking about it more often, but I think it's still, you know, you and I both, we've both got our Ask, Ask Now Save Lives t-shirt on. There you go. Yeah, Grassroots um, Foundation. Yeah, I think, I think the campaigns like that really do make a difference. Yeah. Um, but you've got to keep at it. Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the chapter in the book about my cousin who killed himself is I, I wanted to honour him and his life and his death. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I think it's this, I just think there's still such a taboo around it. I, I you know, I, I hate the way we talk about suicide. You know, we, we still say, you know, commit suicide or well, commit suicide. That that word, you know, and, and, it, and it, it's because it was a crime. Mm. You commit murder, you commit burglary, you commit violence. It's like suicide was a crime, and in the eyes of the church, it was a sin. Well, in my eyes, it's neither. It's what happens when you think life is unbearable. Yes, and that's why that's why I have it as number ten on my scale because I see it as the absolute ultimate in mental illness. Mm. But you um, you you managed to outlaw number 10 completely like you say you'll never ever ever get to that point what, what is it that that makes you put that number 10 in a prison cell lock it up and never go there well it doesn't mean i wouldn't but it's a way of telling telling myself that i won't um i mean i've got close i've got you know I've, i start the book with a, a time where it was it was quite a brief you know, it was like half an hour where I was literally sitting there thinking, right, this is it. I can't go with this anymore. I've had enough of it. I'm just going to do it. How am I going to do it? And then I start thinking about how am I doing it? But then I get through it. Mm. Um, so, and I don't think I ever will. I really don't. So, so I think that's why I put it in the, over there. But it's also, I think, to give people that sense of the scale. Um you, it's interesting when you defined my scale at one. You 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 sort of said it was was it impossibly happy or impossible impossible happy, happy you know um, you know drunk on euphoria. Yeah, yeah, which I just don't think exists. I mean, you know, even when Burnley scored like the other night, winning against all odds against Aston Villa with a great header by Chris Wood, I'm really really happy. But that's not one. One is unreal. One is everything that you touch. Is perfect. One is Brexit didn't happen. Trump didn't exist. Um, mm. You know, the environment's not under threat. That's one. Yeah. Um, so I think what I'm doing at both ends is saying, just beware of the two absolute extremes. See, one, one, really... one part of your book, which I found really, really interesting was 
one of the justifications as to why one was unattainable and impossible to you and actually not very desirable was you said um or you wrote uh one could lead to a, a manic scale up of the scale it can it could go from one to nine very quickly it's almost like a a place that's scary for you yeah for sure and and you know i've i've, I've talked before about um in the first lockdown i had a kind of i was definitely at two for quite a long time for a few days mm. which you know when you're on that kind of full on that's quite a long time for yourself and more importantly i think for the people you're living with because i mm. can be i can be full on and if it tips over yeah you do crazy stuff mm. um and you've got to be you know that's when people start to think they can fly i mean it's, you know it's 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 that sort of you, you you're out of control you're losing touch with reality mm. and um so i what i i got i definitely got to two and I, I did something a bit crazy and I posted it on social media and then friends started to phone me and say, hey, come on, what are you doing? Mm. And, 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 and I, was, I, was, I was in the real world enough for the, for the, to be able to go, oh, shit. And then I, then, then I go like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a reality check or, or sorts. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, so let's talk about pressure and how you deal with pressure. So mm -hmm. how, how just in, in comparison, how do you think you dealt with pressure whilst you were addicted to alcohol uh, in the days of the Chilcot inquiry? And now, how, how has your um, way of dealing with pressure evolved? Oh, um, oh. I don't know. Um, well, well, do you, do you think it has changed? Definitely, definitely. I'm just trying to... So, for example, when I was... Um, if I think about the Chilcot Inquiry and now, I would say I am physically fit. Okay? When I was addicted to alcohol, I was not physically fit. Mm. When I was addicted to alcohol, I wasn't sleeping properly. And I didn't worry about that. In fact, I worried if I was asleep because I thought sleep was a complete waste of time. Um, so I, what I took then as pressure was almost like, yeah, I was making myself ill. Mm. And I felt that that was a good thing. I was pushing myself and pushing myself and abusing my own body and through alcohol and stuff like that. So whereas I'd say... The Chilcot Inquiry is a very good example. I mean, I, I've another of my another of my post-it notes is Benjamin Franklin uh, prepared failed to prepare, and you are preparing to fail. Um, I, if something like that is happening and it matters, mm. I really, really work at it. Yeah, um, and I force, I, I put myself under pressure. I imagine the worst. I. I put myself in the in the mind of the person who's going to be interrogating me and also the person who's going to be watch it, watching me being interrogated with a view to undermining what I'm saying. Yeah. I think through those things in a very and then I do things like, you know, I will I have I, I feel myself in a process so is that I, you know, I remember not the, the Chilcot inquiry, I remember the Hutton inquiry. Um the, the, I, we had media outside in the street and I didn't particularly want to be, I just wanted to get there and do it. And so I actually, I went and I slept in, um, on a camp bed in Downing Street mm. so that I didn't have to kind of just go, just, just removing that one extra thing. And I knew I would wake up about four, five. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to wake up and I wanted to have a couple of hours just on my own and kind of, I was thinking it through, but I was, I know what I was doing. I was putting myself under pressure. Mm. And it's interesting when, when I got to the high court, I got driven up to the high court. There were loads of crowd. There was a big crowd of protesters. Some of them were throwing stuff and what have you. I was so in the zone. I didn't, you, if you watch the footage of it, I remember some, one of my, one of my colleagues, Martin Sheehan, he texted me, he said, love the Roy Keane moment. And it was like, I, I was just, you know, mm. and so I was using the pressure to, uh, you know, to, to be on, on form, if you like, to be on top of it. Um, 
And then I'd say now, I don't feel under that much pressure at the moment. Um, the pressure I feel is to be under pressure because uh, I, I, I quite like being under pressure. So you say uh, you work well under pressure. What, what sort of makes that mechanism go? It could be a it could be a big challenge. As, for example, you know the last sort of big campaign I was directly involved in, the People's Vote campaign, we failed. But I mean, I really threw myself into that. Mm. Um, how does it, it feel to be, fail? Oh, I hate it! Absolutely hate it. How hate how it. much do you hate it? Is it is it is it sort of your kryptonite? Is it the one thing that that you truly despise? Failing. I really, I, I do, I really hate it. I, I, I hate, um, I mean, if sort of physically, if, if, if I can take it kind of physically, mm. um, I've, I, I sort of, and you know, Fiona's always worried about that. If I, if I do something like that, when it's off, when, it, when I'm through it, she always worries I'm going to either go into a massive plunge or find something else that kind of takes me off on a kind of, you mm. know, tangent. And certainly after the the People's Vote campaign, yeah, it was a plunge. It was a plunge. I had a, you know, it was like, it was, it's a physical thing. It's like a, so yeah. Um, I mean, you know, probably more than anyone in the UK that politics is a game of taking one step forwards than five steps backwards. It, it's a game of failing and winning, small successes, small failures, big successes, big failures. So does that amalgamation with your um, desire to not fail, your strong, strong passion to not fail, does that make sort of you a lethal cocktail when it comes to politics? No, I mean, I mean, maybe that's the reason why. When I was working with Tony Blair, I, I kind of, even though it was difficult, and the, you know, the diaries bear this out, even though it was difficult a lot of the time, I always felt we were in charge. I always felt we're kind of, we're better than they are. Mm. We're better than the opposition. We're better than the media. We're winning. I felt that, even though there were lots of downs. I, I, I never felt we were going to lose. Um, and so that's that's kind of quite a nice feeling. Whereas I think at the moment, you know, it's quite <laughs> You know, when the Biden, when the American election was on, I literally sat on the sofa downstairs for five days, mm. just following it. Kind of same, up. same here. I was, I was up all so, night listening to Sky News, thinking, "What the fuck is going on? It's crazy." Yeah. It's, it was utterly that night was ludicrous. Seeing things flip, 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 thinking, "Oh yeah. God, are we going to have a well, a pretty feckless sort of very terse popularist in charge again for a second term?" Um, whom you know my fears for and i'm very critical of um you know go probably further than joe biden i have my fears for joe biden i don't see him as a perfect character um you know there are questions he needs to answer about burisma and, and what have you um but, but i think for the sake of america for the sake of the divide that's happened you know you can't have another term of trump surely no no but but so so i i was just desperate even though i wasn't involved in the campaign i sort of felt a sense of belonging to it mm. Um, and, I, and I was desperate. And I think part of that is because I've actually, for all the, you know, here's one of my previous books, Winners, I, I, I love the whole thing about winning. Um, and we did have a great run with, as New Labour. But actually, since then, I was involved in Gordon Brown's campaign against Cameron. I was involved with Ed Miliband against Cameron. I was involved in, you know, the People's Vote campaign. I wish I'd been more involved in the referendum campaign because I wasn't really. I just, like a lot of people, I just thought, well, it's not going to be lost. And I mean, that was a terrible mistake that a lot of yeah. people made. Um, so I've actually had quite a lot of losing on the political front. Um, I think I'm reaching, you know, and I think I'm reaching that stage in my life now where I'm, I'm sort of thinking about whether it's very hard to give it up. And it's very hard to, I'm not doing politics in the same way, but it's like, you know, even like this morning, I was doing a, an interview with an Irish radio station and I did an Instagram live as I was doing it. Yeah. So I just have my phone here and doing the interview. It's just amazing. The comments that you get from people that make you feel that you have to stay involved, but actually there's sort of, there's a part of me thinks, God, it'd be nice to have nothing to do with it. Yeah. But I wonder, but I, wonder but I don't know whether I could do that. Seems like a very tasty poison. Well, it's funny. Poison. 
my See, I'm, I'm not I'm not the type of person who's incredibly cynical of government and politics. I mean, I think when when people go about going, oh, fuck the government, fuck politics, all of this, I, I think that leads to to a disastrous environment. And you probably elect the wrong people well, at least as Trump. a result of it. Right. At least Trump and Johnson. Yeah. Well, what do you think brought along Trump in America? Because clearly, clearly there was a mistake. You can't have a, a an apprentice celebrity guy, you know, who is known to be immensely terse and, you know, who is not a politician, who has no qualification, the least qualified president in history. Um, what leads to that happening? I think it's a lot of things coming together. I, th I think um, the, the I think there's no doubt that globalization. Uh, there were a lot of upsides to it, but there were downsides as well. And I think the people in power, uh, same went for here. And I think it was one of the reasons for Brexit. I think we were far too fond of, of sort of emphasizing the upsides and, and, and not cognizant enough that there was a, there was a world out there that wasn't feeling those benefits in the same way. Mm. And was becoming more and more alienated. I think another factor, so that sort of sense of, you know, being alienated from the main thing that seems to be happening in the world, globalization, digitalization, all that stuff. And then I think the second thing is that he, Brexit uh, and Trump both capitalized on a sense of kind of the, 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 the justification of anger and hate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, it was cool to be to say, and social media played into this as well, I don't care what the experts think. I don't care what political leaders think. I've got a mate down the pub and he told me this vaccine's not safe. I've got a mate down the pub and he says, we are going to get a great trade deal with mm. America. I've got a mate down the pub. And Facebook, of course, that's the genius of Facebook is the concept of the friend. We don't believe politicians. We don't believe journalists. We don't believe doctors. We don't believe experts. Yeah, yeah. We believe our friends. We believe our mates. And I think Trump sort of, and, and you say, how could a, a guy from The Apprentice, but actually that role that he played in that and that sense of life being a show and the showman is the one who wins, I'm afraid I think we did start to confuse reality and reality TV. Mm -hmm. um, and Johnson's a little bit like that as well. Johnson rose to prominence by people say, oh, he makes me laugh. Well, he never, ever made me laugh. Um, I could see right through it from the word go, but I'm afraid he made a lot of people laugh. I remember, yeah. I remember watching him at the 2012. The zipline and Union Jack flag no, fiasco. Just, that, just the whole thing. I could see this guy who, you know, didn't do nearly as much to deliver the Olympics as he likes to pretend. This guy's exploiting it for his own ends. Um, and he's got the character to do it. And, you know, and then if you've got this very right-wing media that we have and the very polarized media that you have in america you've got a base and you use mm -hmm. that base and if you and you know and you, you've got to hand it to trump I, I i honestly didn't think that he would be able to use twitter quite to the extent that he did to yeah. not just to communicate but to create and mobilize and motivate a, a yeah. huge base which is still there well, many, many people believe, and I think they do have some justified argument in believing this, that, that the sort of Trumpistan and sort of Wokistan, as somebody like Eric Weinstein would say, um, that that came about by the sort of extreme oppositionist politics that was going on, harboring an immensely politically correct landscape and that growing into an uncontrollable beast of, of uncertainty and uh, well, a lack of uh, foundation, no backbone to it. It was almost like it was anarchism, really. Do you think that, that this sort of, you know, evolved politically correct movement has part, part of the, the blame for, for Trump and Boris Johnson? But, but, I, listen, I've got to be honest, I don't know what this woke thing means. Mm. Well, it, it, originally it meant to be racially aware, but it's evolved into something else now. It's evolved into, um, you know, what could be considered some form of neo-Marxist agenda. Well, at least that's an explanation. But it's not one that I've heard before. I was having this, I was having a relentless text argument with uh, Ian Botham. I know Ian Botham quite well from cricket and also from, we were, he and I did stuff together for Leukemia Research, Bloodwise, mm -hmm. the charity. Yeah. Um, and he goes, okay, he goes in the House of Lords and all that. And, and, and he's a classic. He's a classic guy. He says, you know, oh, it's just common sense. Well, I can't just be common sense, right? Mm. Well, 
one person's common sense is another person's, you know, to him, it's commonsensical to go and shoot living animals. To another person, that's an absolute obscenity. Mm. You have to find some sort of, you know, argument. You have to have a proper argument. Yeah. And it's not black or say, white. But the issue yeah. is, is when, when one person proposes the, the other argument, say shooting animals, when somebody proposes that argument, if that's responded by, you know, putting a complete lid on it and saying, don't speak, you're cancelled, can't speak at all, don't propose your argument. That's not really black or white. That's just one side of the field. But, I don't, but I, I'm not aware of where that's done. I never do that to people. No. Well, I, that's I, probably I, I, because you're, you're probably not a part of Wokistan. At least I don't think you are. I see you as a, a centre-left, um, you know, uh, political person. But this, this, this other thing about, you know, the, the, like that, the, this whole thing about freedom of speech, every time I see these right-wing people claiming that their free, free speech is being curtailed, they're saying it live on television. <laughs> you know, there I mean, is they have there. more access to speech than they've ever had, mm. and yet they use it to complain that their voice is being curtailed. So I just think it's, I always thought the politically correct thing was, <clears throat> was, um, was overdone as well. I mean, what does it mean? I think for a lot of people, politically, politically correct, I mean, that they, they thought it was wrong that somebody out there had decided that it was, that it was not funny to make jokes about homosexuals and black people and Irish people and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and there was, listen, yeah. there, was a t there was a time when you go back and look at, you know, my daughter's a comedian and I sometimes I show her some of the stuff from comedians back when I was growing up. I mean, You're Bernard Manning they, type. Yeah, they were saying yeah. stuff that, well, there was that guy, um, what was his name on the comedians? The, 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 he was a black guy, but he used to make really racist jokes about black people and people used to say it was okay. But actually when you listen to it, it's awful. Yeah. But it was okay for them. And I think sometimes what this whole sort of woke thing is about is saying we want to be able to have our prejudices and justify them, and we, and we shouldn't have to justify them. Well, not sure about that. Well, sure okay, okay, there is definitely an argument for people disguising humour with uh, racial prejudice or xenophobia or homophobia, what have you. Um, but then there's also the extreme side. I mean, I, th I remember Tony Blair going on Good Morning Britain to uh, sort of, he was a bit niffed off at people saying, you know, they can't call them the free wise men. They have to be called the free wise people now. You know, who said that? Though? Who said that though? Um, I don't remember who said it, but I know Blair was was kind of annoyed at it. No, but no, but I suspect that would have come out of nothing. You know, somebody would have said, and it, you know, I always say with, with our newspapers, for example, never read a story that the headline is fury over, because what it means is they've asked somebody to get furious about yeah. something. Yeah. So somebody will have said three wise men should be three wise persons. As it happens in the Bible, they were men, as I understand it. Yes. Yeah. Therefore, call, therefore, I would say call them men. Um, but I think that, I don't know, I just think, I think it's a way of avoiding that whole politically correct thing and this woke thing now. I think it's a way of avoiding having a proper discussion about something. And this thing about cancel culture, I don't really understand what it's about because I like having arguments with people who disagree with me. Yeah, so do and, I. I love it. I love discourse. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I don't, I won't, I, 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 would I, you know, I remember when Nick Griffin, the BNP guy, when he's on Question Time, I thought, I didn't think that was a good idea. Not necessarily because you shouldn't be allowed to express opinions that other people find offensive, but I felt it was, I felt it was Question Time for their own clickbait reasons playing into somebody else's deeply offensive agenda. Mm. I think the fact that Nigel Farage has been on Question Time more than any other person in its history sort of speaks to the same thing. They want controversy, they want rage. Yeah. Whereas yeah. actually, what when I was growing up, the reason why a programme like Question Time was so important in the political debate was actually you didn't get rage, you got, you got light rather than heat. Um, and I just think that's what we're losing by the nature of the debate that we now have. Um, I, I, I see I see that argument. I mean, I think, again, it's it's all about allowing conversation. And I see on both sides, I see, you know, I don't know, let's let's say radical feminists saying all men, they're they're rapists, they're bad people, blah, blah, blah. Then you have, you know, the right saying, oh, no, I'm I'm a man, I'm not bad. But then they go on to say, oh, all Muslims, they're terrible, they're awful, blah, blah, blah. There needs to be there needs to be some sort of um, 
oh, there needs to be some nuance. There needs to be some middle ground where conversation has to be embraced on both sides because that's how you find uh, a, a synthesis. That's how you get to the, the, yeah. the middle ground. And that's, that's meant to be how parliamentary democracy works. And But I think for that to happen, you need, you need parliament to be at the centre of the national life and be respected. And you need the media to be serious and grown up. And I'm afraid I just... I think so much of our media is not. I don't mm. think it's that serious, and I don't think it's grown up. And um, but you know, even the way you put the thing about you know woke is start. If you think about that, that that is an extreme way of expressing an opinion. Mm. That's, you know, that's um, Eric Weinstein, who I believe coined that term. That's his neologism. Right. right okay. Have you heard of so, Eric Weinstein? No. Should I um, he's American Harvard financier, very, very intelligent man. Uh, he's, okay. he's actually credited for, for helping to complete one of Einstein's theories. So he's um, he's very, very intelligent. You should probably interview him one day. I'm sure he'll be. He, I've, I've spoken to him once. He's um, OK. He's a very, very, very intelligent, admirable, okay. um, compassionate man. He's a liberal who believes that that it's um, it's it's come to the point where the conservatives will be the only people who will uh, give him. Uh, a chance to speak um, and, and he's been scared to speak on conservative platforms because if you see somebody who I don't know represents the left appear on Fox News for example the left will instantly discredit their opinion um, because it's Fox News. Yeah and that and that's uh, and you know you've seen that now as well with these this new new tv stations that are starting here where they're trying to put out a message that they're not going to be Fox News they're not going to be right wing Mm. But they're, they're, everybody's the critics are out there the whole time. Every time they announce a new presenter, it's a right. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of picking on it as a that's another one, that's another one, that's another one. It's, a, it's almost like it will get pushed into being that, mm. um, regardless of what it wants to be. Um, no, I think I, I, I'm not a fan of the whole uh, sort of you know unplatforming. I think if I think if people are, you've got to make a judgment. I mean, uh, you know, I I I, I would probably not do uh you know if i was asked to go and do a television debate i've done debates with that guy toby young but i think he's just an attention seeker and i, I you know it's, so it's not his opinions i object to it's it's the fact that he i think manufactures opinions to get to get to get attention because get that's clicks yeah yeah and i'm just not interested in that i'm yeah. but i would talk I, I would debate and have debated with with people who are you know, I actually quite enjoy debating with Nigel Farage. I used to go on his LBC, LBC programme mm, quite a lot yeah. because I, 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 I think he, you know, I, I, whereas, and I'd love to debate with some of the, the current Tory lot, but they just, you know... I, right, they, they're they shut just, off to having any form of discussion they won't whatsoever. Do it. And they're saying, they oh, oh, COVID, we can't talk, we can't go on Good Morning Britain, we can't face Piers Morgan, we can't do this, blah, 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 um, because COVID, COVID, COVID. When yeah. really, the, right now in this pandemic, we need nothing but transparency, which we're just not getting. Yeah. Well, they have started to go back onto Good Morning Britain, I've noticed, and I, and I, I, I think they may as well be reading a script. I mean, it's, yeah. yes, well, you know, it's unforeseen. Um, I can't answer that question as of right now. We can only look at the numbers. I mean, the numbers, come on. When, when are the numbers really the numbers that reflect the true, you know, what's actually happening? Very rarely. Um, okay, I've got a challenge for you. Go on. Are you willing to accept the challenge? Mm. Depending on, it's a question, it's a question. It's not a physical challenge or anything. Um, I want you to steal, man, your opinion on the EU. Obviously, you're an adamant Remainer. So could you argue the other side for me? Why would somebody want to leave the European Union? Um, yeah, the, 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 if you believe that power should be divested it should be in the hands of the people, then the closer that power is to the people where they are and where they live, then the better. That's the, that's the, that's the argument. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you um, believe now, that? Do you believe that argument? I believe it on one level. I believe it in relation to local democracy. Um, and I, you see, I, and, and I think it was yesterday, I don't know if you saw Johnson up in Scotland on that ridiculous trip he made. Yeah, pointless. Utterly pointless. But what, and one of the things he, he was sort of defending the union by saying that, you know, I, re I really believe in we should cooperate together, where we can cooperate together, we should cooperate together. And he thought, well, you know, why have we come out of the European Union then when we're facing all these global yeah. challenges? Yeah. 
So he sort of uses one argument that is destroyed by what he's actually done and what he's going to be remembered for in history. Um, but I think that, no, I can see it, but what I, what I can't stand about the whole thing is that, you know, the, the arguments on which they fought it, particularly sovereignty, sovereignty is, is uh, it, it's not a zero sum game. You know, sometimes you, you, a sovereign nation will choose to pull it sovereignty. That's a sovereign decision. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's the that. If I were forced to do it, that's what I would build it on. Um, okay, I, I don't know if you've looked into this story, but one story which which I've kept my ear close to, um, and the greatest fear of mine in regards to the EU. I mean, I I, I obviously side with the the Remain side much more than the Leave side, but that doesn't mean I'm not skeptical of, of parts of the European Union. Um, and and I do believe in reform, not remove, and and all of that. Um, but the EU investment agreement with the CCP, I mean, you have the EU perfectly willing to brush over the fact there's been mass genocide, racial cleansing, forced labor, you know, to Uyghur Muslims in China. There's also had their, you know, Xi Jinping's erosion of democracy in Hong Kong. And you've also had mafia-like tactics with neighboring states. I mean, the best Europe managed to get in this trade agreement was a tiny bit of transparency and subsidies. I mean, there's nothing. Mm. Well, I think you could bring it. You could bring it closer to home. I think that you look at some of the stuff that's going on in Hungary and Poland at the moment. It it fundamentally goes against the values of the European Union, and they are members, and they want to keep them as members. And I get that. And I guess what I'm, what I would say on both of those things is that, the, the bigger the bigger you get in the organisation as an international organisation, then maybe the messier the compromises become. Mm. I think sometimes, for example, we talk a lot about the United Nations and I think sometimes people look at the United Nations and why can't the United Nations sort this out? Why can't the United Nations step in? But all the United Nations in is a collection of all the nations of the world. That's mm. all it is. Mm. It's not a kind of, it's not a kind of, you know, supranational court that can judge everything. And it's actually a deeply, it's done some amazing things, but it's a deeply inefficient structure because emerging as it did from the Second World War, it, you've got five, the great powers that were then, mm. they all have this veto. You know, we we happen to be one of them. Um, but, the, but you know, what you've seen, you mentioned China. Um, China, the other day, this, in relation to Navalny, the European Union tried to do some reasonably tougher stuff on Putin. But the Hungarians said no. The Hungarians have that power of veto on that yeah. thing that was being discussed then. And likewise, the United Nations is not going to do much about the Uyghurs because China's got a veto on on the Security Council. Hmm. So it, you know, are you what suggesting that the the UN might not be as stable as people believe it to be? Uh, no, I think it is a pretty stable organisation. I think it does do a lot of good, but I think people need to stop being so romantic about what it is it's like you know we, we haven't you know when, when we were doing the whole iraq thing and um you know that was a really difficult time for everybody but mm. the, people kept saying well we're not going to do it unless the united nations agrees with it well that means you're not going to do anything unless every country in the world agrees right, which clearly they won't be which they won't because one of the countries is is iraq yeah um yeah. and but you have you know when you have a situation now where basically because of the sort of geo strategic power plays going on in the world you've got the russians will you know, they will step in against anything not just that they see against their own interests but that they see as being pro an american or a, mm. or a european interest so that would be whether that's france or germany and you know eventually i think the united nations i don't see how it sustains this um this is the the permanent five i think it's a very very if you're um India, if you're Nigeria, if you're Brazil, if you're Mexico, you're kind of looking and thinking, well, yeah, you're Turkey. These, it will have to evolve and change at some point. Yeah, uh, but so, so I, I listen. I agree with, you know, politics in the end is is not, it's not straightforward. There's lots of messy compromises people have to make. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I, I totally take your point. Are you, are you, um, are you fearful of the? Uh, 
the CCP's sort of moved to supremacy with their, uh, you know, trying to take over the Silk Path, the Silk Road uh, trade route from from Greece. Um, their their mass genocide, their sort of clear wrongdoings. Are you fearful of their? You know, they they even have suicide nets around. Um, around their workshops sweatshops really because the people don't even have the right to kill themselves they're 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 slaves does it does it does it fear you that, that, that this could potentially um, go, go wrong it could be the next big chapter oh listen i don't think there's any doubt at all that the you know if, if, look you never know what periods of history will be remembered for. Um, it may well be mm. that this is the era of the pandemic, right? It may be that that's what, but it may be that this, I think this, this is a probability that this is the era of the continuing rise of China. Um, and how the other power blocks in the world deal with that is a very, very, very important question. I think it's why it's a good thing that another of the many good reasons that Biden won. Mm. I think Biden will, listen, he, he'll be into the real politique, but he will be into the politics in a way that Trump, I think, never was, mm. either with China or with Russia. Um, so, yeah, and the Silk Road thing, if you, you know, it's a uh, it's a pretty obvious thing to do for a for a country that has been low down in the power stakes and the wealth stakes and is rising up. Um, so the other countries that that goes through, they have to make their own choices. But so fear, I'm probably not as fearful as you sound. You sound very very fearful. I I, I kind of believe they're going to be the the, the next. I mean the the way they've been uh, treating neighbouring states. I mean. They've been forcing. Have you? You've obviously read about the the damming up of the Himalayas. You know, pretty much annexing India's land, mm -hmm. and and just completely unjustified, completely unknown. And, 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 and listen, it's, it's, they're, they're, it's they're, sort they're, of it's awful tactics. Sorry, what were you, you going to say? No, I was just saying they're they're all over. Don't they're all over Africa? Um, yeah, neocolonization in Africa and Australia. Their economic power is uh, immense and growing, um, and they're not a democracy. That much, <laughs> mm. <laughs> that much we know. Um, I think there's another big argument that flows from this, which Trump. Another reason why it was good that Trump went. I think that the the rise of China, and the endurance of Putin. Uh, is feeding this idea in democracies that democracy's had its day. Yeah, um, yes, definitely, seeing, very much I so. think you're seeing a little bit of that in Hungary. I think you're seeing a little bit of that. I actually think you're seeing a bit of it here, to be absolutely frank. Yeah. I think that, I think that Johnson is, and his government, you know, these sound small by comparison with, you know, genocide against the Uyghurs or whatever it might be. But, you know... The institutions of government are being eroded. You know, the proroguing of parliament, the lying to the queen thing, the the junking the ministerial standards thing. The yeah, um, you know, his reluctance to appear in to to, to be to be questioned. Uh, these are all sort of straws in the wind. They're signals that you know I would not. I don't think we should be so complacent and so arrogant that we think that we couldn't move to a very quasi-authoritarian posture. Yes, uh, I mean, I, I think the the day, the tragic day, the the Capitol was stormed in America, um, where you had police officers tragically lose their lives. Uh, I mean, you you could have had so you had Xi Jinping in in China and and other dictatorships going. Look, look what democracy gets you. Um, so let's not go down the route of democracy then, because you don't want this. And and uh, it's, well, not it's, only that, it's, not it's only a that. laughing in the face of democracy, really. And, and no, it's no, showing not, that. Not, not only that, the next time that um, there's an election, of which there are many, which the Americans or the Brits or the Europeans will say, you know, that is not a free and fair election. Mm. <laughs> you just say, well, you know, you stole the referendum in Brexit, you broke the laws, so you can bugger off. And you say to the Americans, well, you got you, you elected a president who got 71 million votes last time, mm. who, who, who told people to storm the capital. So, you know, kindly go away and sort out your own house. Mm. 
And that's why this thing about, you know, uh, the reputation of countries and the reputation of leaders is incredibly important. How would you summarize Boris Johnson in one statement, one sentence? Um, I think he's a journalist. Mm. Uh, I think he's a liar. I think, he's, I think his character is very suspect. I think he lies far too readily. Yeah. And I think he sees politics as a game in which yeah. he has to be the winner. Now, he's won. He won the referendum. He won the leadership and he won the general election. He's the prime minister. He's what he always wanted. Um, but I think he's a very bad man doing a very bad job. See, I, I, I seriously don't consider Boris Johnson as the winner. I consider Jeremy Corbyn as the loser. Yeah, there's definitely something in that. But part of being a winner is, is, is you know, look, one of the reasons we won was because we had a, a succession of pretty weak leaders against us. Um, mm. The Conservative Party was going through a very bad phase. And, uh, uh, you know, the Labour Party elected Jeremy Corbyn. And, and that was ultimately, I'm afraid, that was to the benefit of Johnson. You're right. But, but you, you, you can only, it's like in you know, in, in football or in rugby or in cricket, you play against the team that's on the pitch mm. uh, and you, you adapt your game accordingly. Yeah, um, it's just Labour brought in a very specialist team to appease to a very specialist group uh, group in the nation, uh, something that does not have mass appeal. Nothing like Blair, nothing, you know, the, the 97 victory was just so massive. And, and the thing is, I think coming off the back of Major, I, I don't think that environment will ever be able to be harboured again. I mean... Blair had this sort of wave of wonderful liberalism, which I don't think could ever be repeated. Well, you, don't, you, you may be right, but I, I hope you're wrong. And, you know, I would just say that in 1992, I can remember, I was a journalist then on the Mirror, and I can remember on the morning after the election being on College Green, being interviewed by BBC Breakfast Time, and I was with Peter Jenkins, who was a former independent and Guardian commentator, um, sadly dead now and he said this is after John Major had been re-elected against Neil Kinnock he said if Labour can't win in the conditions that we political conditions we had for this election I think it's fair to say Labour will never win again mm -hmm. five years later we got a landslide now so you can never yeah yeah never politics is a, is a very sort of ping pong game it just goes one way then Oof, all the way well, I wish other. it did. In some ways, I wish it did. If you if you look at the last eleven elections, Labour's lost eight of them. Yeah, that, that is the only something. three. That, the only three that we won were with Tony in charge. Yeah, I mean, I looked at the um the 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 map, the the red, blue, yellow map of uh ninety seven victory and the uh, two thousand and nineteen victory as well for for the for the Tories, and you could see how it just went from red, red wall, red everything to blue everything, blue wall. I mean, there, there has to have been something that went wrong in the Labour Party. For sure, for sure. You know, the, I think partly, I think there is a sort of a bit of a time span. I mean, it, it is incredible that this lot have been in power now for over a decade. Shocking. It's, in, it's incredible because they're so bad. I mean, you know, you'd have to say, <laughs> I remember when Cameron went, uh, and Theresa May took over and people, a friend of mine said, you know, you got, you got to hand it to Cameron. There he was, clearly the worst prime minister we've had. And now he's only the second worst. Yeah. Well, now you've got Johnson. <laughs> Theresa May said, oh, well, you know, I'm not the worst. Yeah. So, and yet they're still in power and they're still actually doing not bad in the polls. Yeah. Um, so, look, something clearly has gone wrong with, uh, and, you know, we have to put our hands up and must have been part of that. You know, I often think if we'd have, when we set out in 97, cementing Britain as a leading player in Europe was one of our strategic goals. Well, we can't have succeeded in that, otherwise we wouldn't have left the European Union. Mm, yeah, but I would argue that that's not the fault of New Labour. Um, I mean, I, I hope, do you think Starmer is a Blairite or a Corbynite? You know, do you think, which way does he lean? I think he's, um, well, I think it'd be good if he was neither in a way. Um, is that possible in, in the, the current landscape of the party? I hope so. I mean, I think that obviously it's an obvious thing that people constantly define 
leaders against what's gone before and the party against what's gone before. But I think that one of the things we were very successful at with New Labour was, was, was not to define ourselves constantly. We were defining ourselves against the challenges of the country yeah. and against the government yeah. that was failing. And that's what I want to see Keir doing. Um, you know, it's not easy and it's not easy to do it at a time when we've got this COVID going on. But um, I'd, I'd just like to see more kind of, you know, <laughs> this is my nature. I just want to see more of that. Well, yeah, you're, you're part of the sort of um, bruiser era of Labour. I mean, you've got the, the Prescott's, Gordon Browns, you know, those lot, they really went at it. There's something I quite miss about sort of having John Prescott sort of boiling away in, um, in the House of Commons. Well, and not, not only that, don't forget, you know, because of the, the seats that were lost, you know, we did lose a lot of MPs, like, you know, even something like Dennis Skinner, who, I mean, you know, he's, <laughs> you need voices like that in Parliament. That dodgy Dave. Who? Dennis, oh, dodgy, dodgy, Dave, yeah. dodgy Dave, Dennis Skinner. <laughs> hilarious, hilarious. Yeah. Very much so. Um, okay, so you think it's possible for Labour to win? Yes, no? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Um, you, but it's you know you've got to do three things. You've got to you've got to expose the reality of this terrible government, and I don't think they're doing that enough. Mm. Uh, you've got to have a constant campaigning presence, yeah. constant. Yeah. And you then, most importantly, I think, as you get near an election, you've got to bring forward a policy agenda that people think speaks to their lives. Mm. Um, I'd say on all three. Um, more to be done. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me Starmer's strategy is to take the back seat and just say, "Well, look, look what this looks what 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 you get when you get this. Look at um, look at the failures of uh, statecraft, this that, and and then you decide." Um, but there's there's no real scrutiny. I haven't. There's been you know the occasional sort of insult in in the House of Commons, but there's been no serious well, scrutiny to to, to Johnson. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a great quote in this book from Gary Kasparov, the chess player. He said, waiting for your opponent to fail is not a strategy. Mm. You've got to do both. You've got to do both. So, so you don't think the, the strategy of, 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 the, of the, the backseat sort of um, just sort of waiting for the failures to, to come in, no, which they, which they have been. They have been. Well, it seems like he has. It definitely, you know, the consensus is that he has been. That he hasn't been really holding the government to account. I think he's been good at PMQs, but I think it's, I think it's not enough. I think that, and I think the combination, I said this, I did a piece for Tortoise yesterday, a combination of the media and the opposition are just not, they're not holding the government's feet to the fire enough. Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned Prescott and Gordon Brown. I mean, I, I, can, I can remember Robin Cook over the, the, uh, the Scott inquiry. I mean, Robin was just relentless. Day after day, he would come and see me, right, I've got this line of attack, I've got this piece of paper, I've been leaked this. You've got to be out there. And I feel that on Brexit, Labour have slightly disabled themselves as an opposition by voting for the deal. And on COVID, yeah. I, I think they're, they're, too, they're too willing to give the government the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, they get no thanks for it. Johnson, mm. you know, here has tried to be supportive in lots of ways. And Johnson yeah. just sort of, you know, Lies yeah, in Parliament. Yeah. Well, what you said not too long ago was, "You're now backing the vaccine because you know it's going well." I mean, that's just ludicrous. And and I could just imagine. I really can just imagine the whoever will be the next Conservative leader after this this screwy deal, the deal, which is just smoke and mirrors, really. If we're being honest, um, it will just be well. You voted for it too. So, so you are, you know, you're exactly with us on the same boat. So don't pretend to be the good guys here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's what will happen, which is which is unfortunate. I mean, just to list a few. I mean, I know um, we'll wrap up soon, but just to list a few of the errors of the the Johnson government so far: hundred thousand deaths, uh, civil servant purging, um, lack of lockdown, false hope, uh, not attending five Cobra meetings. Uh, I mean, no exam preparation and a lack of detail to to business during during Brexit. There's many many others that, that I could mention, but that's just to list a few. Oh, there are, there are, listen, there are hundreds, and, and, and this is the other thing I said in the tortoise piece that gets my goat. If this was a Labour government, I was remember, you know, Derek Draper, um, who's married to Kate Garraway, and he's had really bad COVID since the start, and he's been in hospital since March. Hmm. 
when he was an advisor to Peter Mandelson. The story ran for days and days and days because Derek Draper had said to some undercover journalist, there are only 17 people in this government that matter. And to say that I know them all personally is an understatement. That was it. Mm. That was the story. It ran, it even got its own gate, became known as Draper Gate, right? You've got stories related to COVID of massive sums of money that have gone to people who are not qualified to do the job that they've been asked to do. And it turns out they're donors of Vote Leave or the Tory party or they're a mate of Gove or Cummings or Johnson or somebody. Mm. If that had been us, if, if Robert Jenrick had been a Labour minister, he'd have been shredded by now. Yep. If Rhys Mogg shipping his millions to Ireland, shredded. Yeah, you know, definitely. The Jennifer R. Curie thing, if that had been Tony Blair or Gordon Brown, you know, shredded. Yeah. And I'm afraid I think, you know, we, we just have a very, very right wing media and they prefer Tory governments to Labour governments. So they give the Tory government yeah. an easy ride. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know people say that the, the sort of the new Labour movement. Um, jumped into bed with with Murdoch and what have you, but from what I can see in the papers uh, from from that from that time from that era, there's been no real sort of uh, kinship going on. It, it has been um, scrutiny for the smallest minutiae of, of, of reasons for for just sort of nothing really. Yeah, even even the other day, I'll give you another example from his press conference the other day. Pippa Creer from the Mirror asked him whether he'd been in contact with any of the families of the dead. Mm. And he, and he said yes okay now i don't believe him mm. i could be wrong but i don't believe him because i think that he is such a showman that if he had been doing that we'd have known about it um meanwhile i've been talking to this group covid justice 19. they've been trying to see him for months yeah. they've been they've been refused six times and now they don't even get a reply and their families and he lied in Parliament about the reason for that. He said that it was because they were involved in litigation with the government. They're not. It's a lie. If that had been us, everybody in the world would have heard about it by now. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Don't get me going. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much for doing this. I, My pleasure. I enjoyed it an awful lot. Um, we must do it again. Uh, we must come back for a part two. It was really, really quite pleasant speaking Good. to you. Thank you very much, Alistair Campbell. There's Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression. You can get it all good bookstores, uh, Audible, Apple Books, any any other places you can get it? Well, it was Apple It was Apple Book Book of the Week last week. It, it was ahead of Barack Obama's book. I mean, come on. Ah, well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? It's very, very <laughs> cool. Anyway, thank you so much for your time, Alistair. My pleasure. You take care. All the best.